All right, good morning. Let's regather back together and we'll, we'll get going. Um, I am so excited for Christmas. I mean, technically, this, I mean, this isn't a Christmas talk, but if, I would if I could have already started preaching about Christmas. I really love Christmas. Um, so get ready to hear a lot about Christmas from me over the next few weeks. Um, but we're not yet there. Today, in fact, you might be incredibly relieved to know that today we are coming into land with our sermon series, Let the Light In. I know, someone whoop. Uh, or to give it its full title, open up the windows and thank you very much. And it has um, been a lot, hasn't it? We've debated about whether or not opening up windows actually brings in light or whether or not it just brings in breeze. We've looked at things like wrath and envy, sinfulness, lust, greed, covered all the seven deadly sins, all in the pursuit of lives that are devoted to God, pursuing things like kindness and patience and generosity and forgiveness, these seven virtues. And through this, we've come to see that it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us that changes us, heals us, sets us free, and enables us to move towards those virtues. We've also talked through some of the practices that help make space for God to work within us, things like prayer and fasting, surrender and confession, And right back in week one of the series, which, by the way, was on September the 11th, so gold stars for all of you who have hung in over the last couple of months, Pete talked about the pursuit of purity requiring us to enter into the battleground of spiritual formation. And I don't know about you, but some of the weeks I have felt that battle. And alongside the battle, we have also seen real freedom. The lines of people walking up to Bridgetown team to confess a sin, prayer times at the front of the church, crying out to God for healing, for light to shine in the darkness, for the windows of our hearts to be opened up so that the light of the Holy Spirit. And the practices that we've been looking at don't set us free. Jesus sets us free. The practices are like the act of opening up the window. They make space for the Holy Spirit to come in and move And today we are finishing up our series by looking at the sin of pride, the virtue of humility and the practice of serving. And it's quite a fitting one to end on because as we'll see as we look at pride, it's it's a little bit like one of those ones that's a sin that all the other stuff seems to flow from because pride is about control and it's a barrier to freedom. It is toxic and it is invasive and the Bible doesn't speak very favorably about pride. So a few examples for you. Proverbs 16:5, the Lord detests all the pride of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. 16:18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Psalm 31, love the Lord all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 101, whoever slanders their neighbour in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Or James 4, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. So what really is the issue with pride? And we've got to deal a little bit with some semantics here because there is a feeling that we might well use the word pride for that is good, that is a godly feeling. And language falls apart, but, but a pride that is about acknowledging something that is good, something in yourself or in others, being proud maybe of the achievement of your children or the achievement of a friend or a colleague or even yourself. That in itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. 
The pride that we are talking about here is the pride that is about an overinflated sense of self. It's about a preoccupation with self, a focus on how am I doing? How, what do others think about me? It's about comparison and judgment, and it turns away from God to look inwards and towards the self. And it is this kind of pride that God is quite clear he will not tolerate because it puts self above God. And C.S. Lewis is going to be quite helpful to us this morning to understand this type of pride. In his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote that pride is the anti-God state. Anger, greed and debauchery, which are some of the other sins we've looked at, were mere flea bites compared to pride. And his conclusion was that pride eventually leads to every other vice. Because pride focuses above all on self. And so it means that it doesn't matter whether pride manifests in you as arrogance or an overindulged sense of self-importance or if it manifests as low self-esteem and a constant battle with self-hatred. Because they're the two sides of the same coin and it's a coin that is caught in the conflict of a deep desire to be known and to be loved with the fear that if you are truly known, you can't possibly be loved. The real issue with pride is about the disordered thinking and the misdirected desires. The longing to be loved is good. The misdirection of it is when we look at ourselves or others to answer that longing. Eyes that are looking in the wrong direction. Instead of to God, scriptures, the Holy Spirit, to speak the truth of who we are into our hearts, to know ourselves through Jesus, we look to the world, to those around us, and to ourselves to prove once and for all, I'm okay, I'm loved. Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's in Luke 18 and it says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not look even up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. I heard a story once about a Sunday school teacher who was teaching on this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And at the end of the lesson, the teacher said, um, said, now children, let's pray and thank God that we are not as proud as the Pharisee. <laughs> and now all of us are rolling our eyes and thinking, thank God that I'm not as stupid as that Sunday school teacher. <laughs> it's really easy through the lens of biblical knowledge to look at that parable and dismiss it. Yeah, we know, don't think too highly of yourself. But this was radical stuff. The Pharisees were the best. They were the most holy, the most devoted, the most um, committed. They were the people who turned up to every prayer meeting, meeting, were early for every seek first. They gave the highest pleasures at Vision Sunday. They never broke the speed limit. They always kept the law. They had good jobs, nice houses and well-behaved children. The tax collectors were the bottom of the pile. They were outcasts, sinners, scoundrels, the kind of people on the edge of society that you wouldn't really want your children to be friends with. And Jesus is saying, this Pharisee, who, by the way, is right, he does keep the law, he does fast twice a week, he does give a tenth of all he has. 
But this Pharisee is seeking to justify himself, prove to himself and everyone else that he is okay because of his actions, which just doesn't work. And the tax collector has something true. Before the altar of God, we are all of us just sinners throwing ourselves exclusively on the mercy of God. And so the thing about pride is that it is rooted in comparison. C.S. Lewis wrote, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. In other words, it is about measuring ourselves and trying to work out in comparison to the person next to me. Am I good enough? Am I worth it? Am I lovable? And as soon as we're in the, in the presence of someone who has more than we do in a certain area, we revert back to, I am not. Madonna, famous theologian, <laughs> uh, and you know, one of the most successful people alive ever, she said this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. This obsession with having to prove that we are somebody, to prove that we are loved, worthy, and shame is rooted in the belief that we are unworthy of being loved. And pride comes to build us a barrier to ensure that no one ever finds out that truth. I, um, I bombed hard on my A-levels. There was a whole bunch of reasons. Some were to do with things that were going on in my life. Some were to do with a bit too much drinking, not quite enough working. Some were my fault. Some were as a result of things that had happened to me and around me. But either way, I bombed hard. I then lived, and I still do in many years, with the shame of that experience. And in the kind of 20 plus years since that moment, I have acquired a bachelor's degree in history and politics, a master's in international law, a postgrad diploma in theology, a master's in systematics theology, and I'm currently in the process of starting a PhD. How many degrees do you think I will need to achieve <laughs> before I have overcome the shame of something that happened when I was 17? And the answer is there are not enough degrees in the world to heal me of shame. There are not enough exams I could sit for me to feel like I could put that away. The only thing I can do, the only thing that has a hope of touching our shame is to learn through the power of the Holy Spirit that I am not what an example says about me. I'm not a grade on a piece of paper. My self-worth and my ability to be loved have zero connection as to whether or not I live up to other people's expectations. But pride and shame would keep me under lock and key and push me to say, I can't tell anyone about this, this terrible secret. I can't let on that I'm a failure. I have to keep polishing the facade, keep pretending that everything is okay because if people really knew me, they couldn't possibly love me. Shame causes us to keep secrets. Pride causes us to maintain lies and facade. It is a preoccupation with self-concern, controlling how I'm being perceived by others. It's protection of what we reveal about our truest self. Because more than anything, it is a reflection of the deep cry in all of our hearts to know that we are loved. 
and it is looking for the right thing, but in the wrong places. It is misdirected desires. The longing in our heart to know that we are loved is God-given. It's a good thing. It's the longing in our heart for freedom, for relationship with our creator, for intimacy and community with others. It's part of the image of God in us. But when we try to find the answers for that longing in success, in other people's opinions of us, in worldly achievements, how we look, how much money we earn, how great our partner is, how great our job is, how many degrees we have, we will never find the answer we're looking for. God opposes the proud, which are strong words. God opposes the proud because pride refuses to acknowledge our need of God. It turns our back on our creator a God-giving longing becomes a disordered love. So if pride is our vice and humility is our virtue, and it's really hard sometimes to kind of understand what humility really means. It's, it's easy to think it's just some kind of like misguided notion of thinking badly of ourselves, um, and it really isn't that. A- another Lewis quote, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. In true gospel humility, our eyes are less focused on self, self self-promotion, self-preservation, and more focused on the other. And this is why service is the practice that enables us to open up the door in the movement towards humility, because serving enables us, maybe even sometimes forces us, to take our eyes off ourselves and put someone else's needs above our own. And in the search for identity and value, humility requires us to move beyond self-rejection, Instead of looking inwards, rather to seek finding our identity in what God says about us. So humility is not the opposite of confidence. In fact, they are complementary. So in John 13, we have this famous story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And it's often used as an example of humility. Jesus taking the lowest position, touching the dirt and grime of his disciples' smelly feet. And so teaching them what true servant leadership is. And it is a beautiful example of humility. But here's the thing. At the start of this story, we read these words. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus knew his identity. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That is not inappropriate pride. It's just an awareness of who he is and who his Father is. And it was because of this that he could serve the way he did. It was because of knowing his identity that his worth was rooted in being loved by the Father that Jesus could take the lowest position. And Paul says a very similar thing when writing about Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. Paul writes, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant Jesus, knowing who he is, the very nature God, with all things under his power, made himself nothing. Kenosis emptied himself, taking on the very nature, becoming, inhabiting the life of the servant. He knew who he was. He knew the power at his disposal. He emptied himself so that he could serve. And this is the type of humility that we are called to. 
beyond self-rejection. Instead, knowing ourselves deeply loved. Choosing to think of ourselves less so that we might serve. Tim Keller has written um, a little kind of 40-page book on humility, and he entitled it The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And I really love that title, the freedom that comes when we put down our preoccupation with others, when we can surrender control, when we can know ourselves deeply loved, even forget about ourselves and love others. And in it, he says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with, my fa- with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. When I was um, a university student, I was part of a church that was really committed to mission and evangelism. And as students, we were sort of taking this on and taking it into our university context. And we did a number of like slightly crazy outreach projects. And just bear in mind at this point that this was like 2001 or something. Students were a lot less cool back then. So... (laughs) caveating this through that. Uh, One of the things that we felt led to do uh, was to go to the student union club at closing time about like 1.30 in the morning and be outside in our Christian union hoodies and hand out bottles of water to the inebriated revelers as they stumbled out of the club. We'd put a little sticker on each bottle saying something about God loving them um, and an invitation to a Christian union event. And we would stand there and we'd give out bottles of water. And it ended up being, you know, much bigger than that. We got involved in breaking up fights. We escorted home drunk girls. We'd have crazy theological discussions with philosophy students. And because I was part of the Christian union, like, exec committee, and it had been our harebrained idea to do this, I had to go quite regularly. And honestly, I never wanted to go. It was fine if you had gone to the club that night and just came out and put on a hoodie. It was not okay if at one o'clock you were at home on your sofa and you had to get up, leave your nice warm house, and importantly dry house, to stand outside the club in the, hot, in the cold and in the wet and give out bottles of water. And so every time I went, I would pray um, a very similar prayer. It would go something along the lines of, God, you know that I really, really don't want to be here. But here I am. So fill me with your Holy Spirit. Show me how to love people. And every night I would go home buzzing and declare that it was my favourite part of the week. Because somehow in that moment, in that prayer, something would happen. I would forget about my tired body and my wet feet. I would stop longing for my bed. And as I gave away water and I spoke to people about Jesus, I would start to see these lost, lonely students in the eyes of Christ. And I would know that the Holy Spirit was there and that things would always happen. And there were all sorts of stories I could tell you about how people came to know God through this simple act of witness. But for me, what I remember all these years later is how every time in my weakness, in my selfishness and reluctant obedience, God would answer my prayer. He would help me lift my eyes away from myself, see people through his eyes, and he would move in power. My reluctance would meet his grace And in the act of serving, I ended up being blessed as well. And this was a lesson in overcoming some of my own reluctance, stubbornness, maybe an inclination towards comfort and safety, and instead choose to step into uncomfortable places, choose to give something of myself, and so discover the freedom of self-forgetfulness. 
I ended up thinking less about myself, my embarrassment at the slightly geeky activity that we were doing and the slightly geeky stickers that were on the bottles, less about what other people thought about me, less about my own comfort, and more about serving others. And I've seen that story repeat itself so many times in my own life. I have still not yet learned it. But when I give up some control, when I step out, when I let go of some of my stubbornness, some of my desire for comfort, some of my preoccupation with myself, when I serve others, I am transformed. Talk to anyone who serves at KXC on a Sunday, in one of our local mission teams during the week, you'll hear the same thing. And sometimes it starts as an act of obedience. You might not be overwhelmed with love the first moment you serve, but there might be a sense that God is asking this of you, to give something of yourself for the sake of others, And that as we step into that, God meets our reluctance, our uncertainty, and he changes our hearts, and we are blessed in the process. I think there's an invitation for all of us into a journey of service, in part because of the freedom that is found on the other side of it. So do it. Speak to someone on the team about serving in local missions. Choose to go out and walk the streets of London looking up at others rather than at yourself. Seek to live less preoccupied with our own safety, our own comfort, our own satisfaction. And the gift that we receive is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You know, it really is all about an invitation to freedom. In week one, Pete said, it takes blood, sweat and tears, this journey, because it's about dying to self, about putting to one side our selfish ambitions, about giving up our disordered desires, letting the Holy Spirit heal and sanctify, transform, so that our God-given longings can find their true resolution in Jesus. But on the other side of it, there's freedom. And this whole series really has been an invitation into freedom. And so that's where I want us to end today. And for a long time, I have um, really loved the work um, of Maya Angelou, who is, if you don't know her, she's an American, was an American poet and civil rights activist. And she's written some beautiful poems, and in particular, one of her poems, which is called Caged Bird. And I've been obsessing about it recently. And throughout this whole sermon series, I haven't been able to leave it alone. And in it, it contrasts this image of a bird that is free and like soaring on the breeze with a bird that is held in the cage. And Maya Angelou makes the point in it that the caged bird still knows and longs for freedom, even though it is held in its cage. And I'm going to read um, the poem to you now. So um, feel free to get comfy. And it should come up as well. You can follow along if you want to. A free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still and his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees and the fat worms waiting on a dawn bright lawn and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams 
His shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied. So he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. And it's that last repeated verse that's stuck in my head. The caged bird sings of things unknown but longed for still. A final quote from C.S. Lewis. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The longing that is inherent within the human heart, a longing for intimacy with God, for a far-off country, for Aslan's country, for freedom, a freedom that knows ourselves loved, that doesn't have to stay captive to the edge, to the cage of pride that can drop the walls, that moves towards vulnerability, towards true community with others, a community of truth and light, of humility, of the freedom of self-forgetfulness. But it requires something from us to let go of our pride so that we might know deeply the truth of our identity as beloved. To know the power and authority that we have as children of God to give up our status, our self, to give up our preoccupation with ourselves in the act of serving and loving others, to follow the call to freedom. Jesus promises you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so the final words today are not a warning against the sin of pride. They're not a command to serve. They're not even an invocation towards humility. They are an invitation to a truly free life, saturated in the knowledge that you are beloved, knowing that Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He has made you worthy. Finding the answer to our longings to know ourselves loved and known and seen and worthy in Jesus. And the sermon series, it has been heavy at times, but it isn't about condemnation. It has all been about an invitation to gospel freedom, an invitation into the light, to be lifted out of the darkness and into the light, to open up the windows, to let the light in, and to know the fullness of freedom that our hearts are longing for.